Longest Day is a podcast from a female-founded destination practice that believes that crisis isn't an if, it's a when. We are an organization unafraid of crisis, but have never known one to be resolved in a single day. However long the day or night that gave rise to the crisis in the first place, there's always something we can learn. I'm Leah, the founder and CEO of Broadstairs Consulting, a problem-solving consultancy offering crisis and governance advisory services to help leaders and organizations thrive and flourish. We operate in the gap between legal and public relations, at the coalface of difficult situations, believing that most crises are avoidable and the impact of inevitable ones usually can be mitigated. Our guests have overcome a litany of crises. Many of our guests have worked with us in some capacity in the past. All of them have stories worth hearing, We trust them to make this worth your while. We hope it helps you trust us. Today's guest is Richard Both, a senior banker with 40 years of experience. He most recently spent 15 years at Barclays Investment Bank, and during his time there, became chairman of financial institutions, EMEA, and also co-headed global finance, EMEA. We can't wait to speak about Richard's career in banking and how he managed working within such different and at times challenging economic cycles. Richard is now retired from banking, following his acquittal at the Old Bailey. Richard and I have worked together in the past, and he is one of my favourite people. Thank you for being willing to be interviewed, and welcome to The Longest Day. Thank you. So, um, Richard, I wonder if you might be able to describe your longest day. So I think it was the 30th of October 2008, which was the day on which Barclays Bank successfully raised approximately £7 billion in order to prevent the UK government from bailing out the bank. And the reason it was long was because it it was the last in a series of exceptionally fraught days during October of 2008, following the recapitalization of banks in the UK by Her Majesty's Treasury. Barclays had quite successfully persuaded the Treasury to give it some breathing space to raise money privately. And I had been one of a number of people working on that pretty much um, night and day. It wasn't entirely clear, certainly to me, that we were going to succeed in that effort. And so the day in question, not only were we in the midst of hand-to-hand combat with our investors from the Middle East on the terms and conditions of the fundraising, we also had the, the clock ticking in terms of our relationships with government at the FCA at the time and Her Majesty's Treasury. What did it feel like for you to be at the helm of decision-making at a bank in the midst of that financial crisis? Well, happily, I wasn't at the helm. I was one of the people on the execution team, which included a number of the seniors at Barclays and at the investment bank, tasked with raising the money. But I suppose I was on the bridge, so I had visibility of all of the external parties, uh, both the regulators and investors, 
and other stakeholders. So I got a clear sense of what, what the issues were. And I had some private time during the course of that month with all of the, not so much all of the, but the, the, the two or three people at the time who were running the bank and who had difficult decisions to make. So, so I, so I was there. I wasn't happily having to make decisions, but what I found was that a crisis kind of brings out the either the best or worst in people. And in particular, the chief executive of the bank at the time, I think displayed some of the best characteristics that he could have displayed. Um, and there were some other people perhaps who were either not present for one reason or another, um, or who were present and didn't either have the experience or didn't have the resilience uh, to see the, the project to its end. But happily, we did get there. And in the morning of the 31st of October, we did successfully sign documents that meant that the bank was able to go back to the FCA and Her Majesty's Treasury and say that we could survive without a bailout. And in the midst of all of that, uh, there were some good decisions taken. And there were some decisions taken perhaps with hindsight that, that shouldn't have been taken. But then in a period of enormous uncertainty and when people are tired and the stakes are so very high, which there were, uh, I think people can be forgiven commercially for doing things that perhaps looking back, they might not have done. What were your key takeaways from the people that you worked with at that so, time? So my, my key takeaways were, the first thing is to ensure as much as possible is to keep those that are most interested in their reputations and those that add or are likely to add very little value as far away from the action as you possibly can. And in these days in which there is an enormous amount of pressure in the workplace to be inclusive when, when the, when it's really critical, you want to make sure that the people that are around it do not come with a personal agenda and that they're, they're able to be creative, resilient, determined, and they have some experience that they can bring to bear. And I think we were quite fortunate in having a number of those types of people at the time. So the other thing is, um, in circumstances like that, you have to keep on reminding yourself, and this is a personal observation, who you are and where you came from. So that there's a, because, because in, I was kind of thrust into uh, a situation where I was surrounded by people, a few people who were more successful than I was, more senior than I was. Um, and you had to, you know, so there was this, there was this slight fear of being that imposter syndrome thing where you think I really shouldn't be here because I'm not. And it's important to remember who you are and where you came from. And I think that's a good lesson generally as you grow, as you move through your career. And the other thing is, um, the, 
I got a real sense of what leadership is and what, and I, I read this recently um, in, a, in a book about GE actually. So, um, but it's um, an observation made by, by, by one of the people interviewed that leadership is a, is a journey into the soul. It's all about digging deep to find, uh, to establish, you know, to find the, the, the resources that you need to lead at times of enormous stress are things, frankly, that you're going to find in your soul or you're not. So my two takeaways from that whole episode was ensure the people in the room can add value and make sure that, that you exclude the people that are going to come with a per either a personal agenda or one which is inconsistent with the mission. And the second thing is <clears throat> leadership is best displayed by those people that are able to reach into their soul and to pull from their soul the the resources, the skills, the courage to lead. And I observed that in one or two people and they were outstanding. That's hugely helpful. I'm very conscious that that experience, whilst demanding a, a huge amount of personal resilience, is perhaps not the hardest thing you have had to experience. I wonder if you might be able to tell us uh, whether there have been any other standout crises that you've had to endure. I suppose my own personal crisis, uh, which was <coughs> in 2012, I was, I'm going to say, minding my own business. I was on the trading floor at Barclays Capital and I got a call from somebody who introduced themselves as an enforcement officer at the FCA. And if you're a banker, you know what, well, you don't know what it means, but you, it's not a great call. And he told me to go into a room and call him back, which I did. And he informed me that I, along with a number of other people who had worked on the transaction in 2008 was being placed under investigation. So that <clears throat> was June the 2nd, 2012. And obviously it's, it's etched on my soul. Um, and really from that point forward, uh, to 2020, uh, which was roughly eight years, I went through a period of being investigated by the S FCA, cleared by the FCA, investigated by the fraud office, charged by the fraud office, which funnily enough has never happened before to anyone, and then prosecuted at trial at Southwark Crown Court and then at the Old Bailey and happily acquitted in February of 2000. So that experience, I wouldn't wish on anyone. And I suppose I was very lucky during all of that uh, to have an outstanding legal team, and, um, a fantastic group of friends, obviously my family and my four children. Um, and we got, we found our way through it. Um, the, I think the most 
upsetting thing was the lengths that the fraud fraud office went to to invent a conspiracy against the defendants and others at the bank at the time, which was a total invention on every level. And not unlike the cases brought against defendants in the Tesco proceedings, in the Serco proceedings, and in others, ultimately failed because they were not based in fact or evidence or testimony. And those defendants as I and others who were prosecuted and charged endured a period of some years right in the spotlight for something which at the end of the day, they were all acquitted for. At the time, there was an article in the FT where you mentioned the SFO. Can you say anything more about that? The SFO, like the post office, has the judicial powers to investigate and to prosecute. Whereas other agencies, such as the police, are allowed to investigate, but not to prosecute. The police, if they think there are there is sufficient grounds for a prosecution, have to send the file to the CPS. The CPS will exercise their own decision-making as to whether or not a conviction is likely or not. The SFO, on the other hand, has the power to investigate whatever they choose to investigate. And once the investigation is complete, they make their own minds up as to whether or not they believe a conviction is likely or not. And as we have seen in case Barclays Bank, Serco, Tesco, Unioil, and others at court, the SFO's conviction about whether they will be successful or not has proven to be misplaced. So the SFO have, over the last decade or so, demonstrated, certainly I think to a number of people, that they should no longer be trusted to investigate and to prosecute. And frankly, it would be safer and probably more judicious if, as with the police and HMRC, once the investigation is complete, the file should be sent to the CPS for the CPS to decide whether or not a conviction is likely. As it happens, in 1986, when the Roskill report was published, Roskill, who, who, who had been appointed to lead the Fraud Agency Commission, recommended as one of over a hundred recommendations, firstly, that an agency, a separate agency, should be set up to investigate complex fraud, which, be, which, was, which was set up and is the current SFO, with the powers to investigate and prosecute. His second recommendation was that a fraud commission should be set up to monitor whether that, whether the fraud agency, the SFO, exercised those powers judiciously. As it happens, the Fraud Commission was never set up. So there's never been any oversight. We'll be right back after this advert from our sponsor. This episode of The Longest Day is sponsored by Grosvenor Search, a specialist NED recruiter in the asset management space. Board diversity shouldn't be reducible to tokenism. Rather, efforts to diversify boards must be focused on ensuring that the top 5% of talent are identified and, once recruited, 
empowered to strengthen existing boards. Grosvenor Search offers a targeted approach to ensure that your board receives the most impressive diverse talent. For more information, email info at grosvenorsearch.com. Let's get back to today's guest. But I wonder what it was like for you to have made these observations and be on the receiving end of a feeling of injustice at the way the institution operates in the process of being investigated and ultimately acquitted. I think what the feeling I had was just how ridiculous the whole thing was, how much money had been spent or government money had been spent on the case. We were in court four months at the at the Old Bailey, it took the jury four hours to acquit everyone. And I think looking back on it, what really is unfortunate is that nobody seems to care. And I don't think it, I don't think it's an, it's not an, an important public issue. Who cares if some bankers have to go to court and sit there or some executives from a big company? Nobody cares. But, it's government money that's been spent. So in the case of Barclays, the SFO spent 30 million pounds of government money. Probably, probably in the cases that they lost at trial, they spent 100 million pounds over the last decade. That's just pouring government money down the toilet. And people should be held account, accountable for that. There is a, I think there is a, a treasury committee or a justice committee in parliament that interviews the SFO head from time to time and they don't they clear I've, I've watched a number of those they they don't do their research they haven't really got any sense of what's really happening it's it's just a sort of box ticking exercise so so I, I think to answer your question um I, I never felt I never felt any particular injustice um I don't now although funny enough and another one of the people caught up in it said to me the other day that he thought that I had taken the whole thing personally. <laughs> and I kind of laughed and said, I'm not quite sure how else you're supposed to take it. But, but it, it, it was, uh, it was a, you know, a difficult experience. What one piece of advice would you give to somebody sitting under investigation like you were? Don't catastrophize. So I found myself staring at the wall, believing that it was the end of the world. And it really wasn't. Um, and even if I had been convicted, um, it really wasn't. So my, my, my advice is don't catastrophize, do something about it. And, you know, if you're in that seat, do your own work. I did a huge amount of work on my case and I know the others did. And I was very, very fortunate indeed because the bank paid everybody's legal fees. So I had a enormous amount of support. Um, but even if they're not paying the legal fees, whatever, you know, whatever, whatever situation you do find yourself in, you, you need to invest your own time and energy in obtaining the evidence, making sure you have the evidence, making sure that you can build the case and that you know your case. In the end, I didn't testify in my own trial. Um, and I didn't because I was the last to testify. And by then, 
frankly, we'd won the case. So it was pointless putting the case at risk for me to testify, particularly because most of the case was based on telephone recordings and I was the only person to have te telephone recordings. Um, so I, I would, I would have been cross-examined to death on those recordings. So, so I didn't testify. Um, but by the time I came to trial, uh, I was ready to testify and getting myself into that state was six months of work. So it, so if you're in that situation, you, you, you mustn't catastrophize and you must focus on doing something about it. And the doing something about it is get to know your case. Because by the way, you'll know your case way better than anybody at the SFO. A more lighthearted question to finish. We at Broadstairs Consulting are of the view that crisis invokes hunger. Mm. And so what we would like to know is if you were living your longest day again, what would your food of choice be? Well, for breakfast, I would have some porridge, probably, because I know it's sustaining through the day. I would have something like fish, I think, for lunch with some rice. I know you're saying this because I like it. Um, and you probably wouldn't find that because you're unlikely to be going to restaurants. So probably I'd have some sushi with some rice. And then if you get time for dinner or something to eat at night, um, I, I would probably have uh, some chicken and or, or, or some meat with some vegetables, probably. Um, I would not drink alcohol. And funnily enough, I gave up alcohol as a consequence of this episode. So I haven't had any for eight years now, which I find help, which I found helpful on a number of levels, um, but certainly helped me going through this process. Richard, we'd, we have absolutely loved having you. So fascinating to hear more about your experiences. Um, I've always personally enjoyed your insights on leadership. And that was why I was so keen to work with you. And um, I hope this will be helpful for many of our listeners. And I hope it provides a slightly different perspective on current events and things that we don't get to think about or talk about every day. And so I'm really glad that you could be here with us. And we hope you've enjoyed being interviewed on The Longest Day. My pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to a Broadstairs Consulting Limited podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Tune in soon to hear the next installment of The Longest Day. Copyright 2023. Production copyright. Broadstairs Consulting Limited. All rights reserved.